Hello, and welcome to Cocoon Stories of Gestation. It's been a while since we said this, and now is as good a time as any. This is not a podcast about pregnancy. It's a podcast about you. And today, it's a podcast about her. Elizabeth Osler. I am a theater maker. I specialize in directing and puppetry, and I'm a creativity coach. I help people, specifically artists, with their creative processes. Being an artist was always part of the plan. When I was little, for some reason I had the age five in my head of deciding I wanted to be an artist. And so, and my mom's a visual artist, she's a painter, and so I would attend her classes and paint in the background, load my brush. But I had it in my mind that you had to move to France if you're an artist. And so as I got to be like eight years old, I remember saving up my money and buying a French dictionary at the school bookstore. Like it was actually a book fair. And so I got that and I, (laughs) being eight, I thought that you just transpose the words, right? That I didn't know anything about conjugation and and all those things. So I tried to learn French. So when I grew up to be an adult, I could be an artist in Paris. And then through a series of events, I've discovered theater in high school. And then specifically directing when I was 20, I directed my first show and everything in my life made sense. And it is my, it is my thing. It is everything. I'm very much a director. It is my passion and what I love to do and give to the world. So this is Liz. If you met her at a party, this is probably the story of herself that she would tell you. And depending on how long you were at that party, Liz might tell you even more about herself, if you knew the right questions to ask. Like, say you were at this party and you asked... Do you, I mean, do you have any additional memories of envisioning your life? in the future and and what it might look like in regards to to motherhood and and family and children. It's a weird party, but Liz decides to answer. Yeah, that actually is the one thing I've known since I can remember is that I wanted to be a mother and that not only did I want to be a mother, that I was going to be a mother. And I'm the oldest of four kids and my parents did four and five years. So it was chaos. And so I very much took on the role of an oldest, and I really became a parent to my siblings. And I remember really being making decisions in my life, in my early life, knowing that I was going to be a mother. Like, what kind of decisions? Like anything from what kind of work I would do. I always thought I'd be a homemaker. My mother was a homemaker until I was eight, and then she took a job. And that was actually really devastating in my little world for a number of reasons. And that was the turning point, too, where I began to play more of a parental role. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to work when my kids are little. And so I have to make choices now that that put things in place so that I won't have to work when I have children. And at the same time, you know, still dreaming about what kind of careers I want to have and what I want to be grow up. But also, um, I even remember at one point being 14 and looking 
and I had been taking care of my siblings a lot at that point, and I was making a lot of our family meals. And I remember cleaning up our kitchen and just being like bone tired. And I thought, this is what a mom's really must feel like, where you're just exhausted from the day-to-day stuff. And I thought, you know what? I have to let go of some of this. I cannot take on all of this responsibility because I will not have enough energy for my family when they come. Hmm. And so I, I started to do less around the house because I thought, I need to save all that energy for my own kids. So things like that. My siblings' friends would come over and they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're going to be such a great mom. And I would think, yeah, I am. I am going to be such a good mom. So you, like, that was like a compliment? Very much, very much. Yeah, I just, I just knew. And I've always been drawn to kids. I was an excellent babysitter. Kids have always been drawn to me. I've always been drawn to kids. And it just was really just, as far as I was concerned, it was a given. Like, it was just, it was in the cards for me. And at this party, you refill your drink and Liz's. Because you want to hear more. And you ask. So, um, you know. (laughs) And she tells you. So then I grow up. At 18, I start dating this guy really serious. And we get married when I'm 20. And um, I thought, well, both of us thought, we're only 20. We don't need to have kids right away. Let's wait until we're 25. And that felt right. It was a very difficult relationship. And it was clear pretty quickly into it within a couple years that we had some real problems that needed to be figured out before we brought children into into our marriage. And as time went on, the worse the relationship got. And eventually... I ended it, and by, you know, and at that point, I'm getting divorced, and I'm at 28, and we didn't have children, and at this point, even then, so grateful that we didn't have children. It was somebody that I really needed to fully cut ties with, and and at the same time, my heart broke because I really wanted children. And the end of that felt like the, the loss of a possibility. And I was 28, which meant 30 was right there. And that meant something, potentially. And so that was hard. And my sister, Lisa, was had her first baby just as I was getting separated. And she asked me to be in the delivery room with her. And I was like, I don't need to see your vagina. Like, I love you to pieces. I don't need to see your vagina. And she really persisted. And in the delivery room, there was this little nook I could stand in and not see her vagina. So I agreed (laughs) to be in the delivery room. And I am so grateful I did because I'm there standing in this nook watching this beautiful baby be born. And he... My nephew, Calvin, is born, and 
I have this memory of him coming out and they take him and they place him on her chest and his little head looked up at her. And I just thought, this is, this is one of those moments. This is one of those moments that are a gift from God. These are these moments that I was being so silly about a vagina that I would have missed this. And that um, she had a heart murmur, and so they were concerned about it, and they were looking at it, but it ended up she had to spend the night in the ICU, which meant she had to, she had to be separated from the baby, and her husband wanted to be with her. And so I spent a lot of time with him that first night, and I just sang Moon River to him over and over and over again. And at the same time, holding this baby and so much wanting him to be mine. And one knowing that he wasn't, and knowing that it was probably going to be a while before I'd have my own because my own marriage was, at this point I was separated. And yeah, that was a real um, mixture of beauty and pain around this at that point in my life. Yeah, so we got divorced, and then I really had to get my feet under me again and learn who I was, and I'd really lost my sense of self and my sense of purpose in that marriage, and so I thought, what what do I do? And I started directing a, a musical, and it was the bomb my soul needed to be creating something. And it had been a good minute since I had directed something. My hus- my ex-husband was not supportive of me being a theater artist. And so it was hard. I would occasionally create theater when I was married, but it was always a battle. And so that was one of the things that started to get lost in that relationship. So to have this play and be in it and directing it. And one night after rehearsal, I asked, I was talking to the lead in the show. He was a high school drama teacher and I was asking him about being a drama teacher. And and I was thinking, well, maybe that's what I'll do. Because at the time I was working as a paralegal, which does not use my gifts at all. And I, I mean, I'm a fine paralegal, but... It also wasn't serving me. And so I thought, what else could I do with my life? Because here's the thing with divorce is that it, you know, everything's destroyed, but yet you can be reborn. And I thought, okay, I can be the architect of my life here. And what do I want that to look like? So I thought, well, maybe I can, you know, have theater in my life even more. And so I create... um, so I had this heart-to-heart conversation with him, and he looked at me, and he just said, Liz, you're born to be a director. You have a real gift. You need to go back to school. I dropped out of my undergrad. I thought, oh, okay. And that then put me on a course to 
of what school I wanted to go to. And I did a whole search and I discovered Sarah Lawrence on a website. And it was, you know, I was living in Salt Lake City at the time. And, you know, Sarah Lawrence was in Bronxville, New York, and it's a private school and really expensive. And I just thought, how am I going to, how can I do this? But my soul was saying this, this is the thing that's going to be my own salvation. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm not going to look at sticker price and I'm not going to look at anything. I'm just, I'm just going to do it. And so I started that, started that process. I went back to school at a Salt Lake Community College to get my wherewithal because it had been eight years since I'd been in school. And I started, and while at Slick, I met this guy and he was really great. And I had been divorced for a year and, and that had been really important in my healing process is not to date anyone for a year. It's the best gift I gave myself. And so I was open to it. And I met this guy and he really pursued me. And I was like, dude, I'm moving to New York. Stop pursuing me. And I hadn't even been accepted to the school yet. I was just confident <laughs> I would be. <laughs> but he did. And um, I eventually agreed to go out with him. So at the same time as I was preparing to apply to Sarah Lawrence, I started building this relationship with this man, see who was really supportive and loving of, of me and the person I was becoming and my healing process and me as an artist, so incredibly supportive. And it had been so long since I had that. But he, he was divorced, had a daughter who was five, she was a great little kid, but didn't want to get married again and didn't want kids again. And I was like, why am I getting involved with this person? But I did, and I fell in love, and we had... And it was a really great healing relationship. And we... And I, so I applied to Sarah Lawrence, and I was accepted. And I moved to New York. And so that looked like quitting my job, moving out of my apartment, coming out here where I knew, didn't know anyone, and breaking up with him. But he came out here with me, helped move me out here. Um, we come visit regularly, and so we continued to date. That relationship lasted five years. And we go back and forth about, and about year four, he said, hey, maybe we can relook at those things, because I want to marry you. And so maybe we can look at... getting past some of these things. What if I agreed to having another child? Could we maybe get married? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I think so. I think so. And then I proceeded to cry for like 48 hours. So it's a good sign. <laughs> that, right? That, that means, yes, do that. I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> and I realized he, um, he was of the same faith that I was but he wasn't practicing and, um, and had no desire to, um, to practice or be involved in the faith and had even started looking at more Eastern religions that were really resonating with him. And I think that that was part of where the tears were coming from is I thought, I think I'm giving up way too much to be in this. And so we came back together and I was like, 
talking to him about it, and he said, I've thought a lot about it, and I can't do another kid. Would you be happy just being a stepmom? And at that point, I was in my early 30s, and, and it wasn't enough. And I loved that little girl. And in fact, being her stepmom was one of the great bonuses in marrying her dad. But it just, it wasn't enough. And also, you know, not being on the same page with our faith and, and all of that just meant that that relationship needed to end. And so it did. And it was really painful, um, but necessary. And then about six months or so later after that ended, I was set up with a guy by a mutual friend who lived in New York because UC was still living in Utah. We were doing this long distance thing. And so here is this guy. I was living in Brooklyn. He was living in Harlem. So we wondered if an inner borough relationship could work. It was tricky. We dated for about eight months and then, and oh, I thought, this is it. We're in the same faith. He's a musician. I'm a theater artist. Um, we both live in New York. We like each other. This is great. And so I really started to think, okay, you know, I'm like in my mid-30s now. This is, it's time. My, my eggs are getting old. This is going to work out. And eight months into the relationship, he broke up with me. And that was, that sucked. That sucked really bad. He broke up with me the day after Thanksgiving. I really went into a deep mourning, and it was my first foray into binge-watching Netflix. Mad Men. Yeah. I think I watched all five seasons in, like, you know, a few weeks. And it was, but it was really painful. The thing that was the most painful, I think, for me in that was we actually hadn't been together long enough for me to, like, I was just starting to feel like I might be in love with him. And so there was a part in that moment that, I thought we were becoming friends and I would miss him, but it was the loss of what, the rep- what it represented, mm-hmm. the loss of a potential marriage. And when we had met, I really thought that I was going to marry him, like really early in the dating. I was like, oh, this is the dude I'm going to marry. Great. I like how things are just going to come along. This, this works with my plan. And it didn't, and it, and it really really, really sucked. What ended up happening is that the reason the relationship ended is that he was gay. And that being in in the relationship with me, and the words, I'll use his wording, is he said, you know, to be close to you requires authenticity. And you you require that from, from your friends and those people that you're intimate with. And I couldn't... I couldn't sit in your space and not look at these things that I never wanted to look at. And, and he, you know, he just said, I really wanted it to work out with you. And so we took a, a break because I was in so much pain and he had to figure some things out. And then 
we ended up working on a project together about four or five months after we broke up that then we really became friends. And so I have been friends and still create theater. At this point, you probably nod because you can see that this guy had a point, that Liz is so authentically herself, radiating a kind of rarefied energy that you understand how this guy must have felt. When I was about 30, I really started talking a lot about my old aches. And I actually started grieving about having old aches. And I know you're looking at me like, yes, you were. That's adorable. You were 29 talking about <laughs> old eggs. But my reasoning was, is I'm 29 and, you know, where, I don't know what my prospects are. So meeting someone takes time. Dating someone takes time. Planning a wedding takes time. Over here, old eggs. Mm-hmm. And so I was really sad about my old eggs and cried a lot about old eggs at 30. Do you, you know, does that, is that still a concern for you? Is that something you, you spend as much time as you So I'm going to be 39 in March. So my eggs are old now. And, I, like, I couldn't donate my eggs. If you like, your eggs are old, we don't want them. And I think I, am I now in high-risk pregnancy territory? 35. Yeah, 35. see? I'm solidly, they're solidly old eggs. I, I even have a Pinterest board that, where I pin all of my things about raising children or, or you know, when I think, oh, when I'm a mom, I, I want to remember this. And I've entitled it, When These Old Eggs Turn Into Little People. Yeah. Poetic, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but do I think about my old eggs now? You know, I had an experience last year that really was a paradigm shift for me. Before that, I was obsessed and obsessing about my old eggs, and it was turning me into a crazy person. Every potential relationship, that was my main concern. And so I would meet someone and there would be some chemistry and I'm like, great. Okay. So if we date for about six months, then maybe we could get, and things are going well, then potentially we could get engaged. And then if we had a short engagement window, that means in less than a year, I could get pregnant. I've known people who've done this and it's worked out. And so I'll be younger than 40 by then. So that's great. Let's make it happen. And then I would be frustrated when he wasn't returning my texts or things weren't moving along but it was like it was getting ridiculous like really like I'd meet somebody and have a connective moment like we weren't even dating yet and I'd be like okay if this works out how quickly and it was just it was crazy making it was crazy making and and the math the math I mean really (laughs) really just I, I, I do this myself. I mean, I am kind of obsessed with it myself. Like, okay, I want to have my last kid when I'm this age. And, you know, I'm a year behind because I had all those miscarriages. And so what are we going to do next, you know? And I've just been realizing, like, I have not, I mean, not that I haven't enjoyed this pregnancy, but I'm, like, five weeks from my due date and I'm, you know, already, like, two years ahead 
Right? You know, like, where am I going to be in two years? Are we going to have another kid or what? Yeah, exactly. And then what does that look like? How old am I? What, you know, all of it. It's like you're reverse engineering your future. Yes, exactly. Which, you know, there is a pattern of my doing this. But I am, right, but in full disclosure, I am an oldest and a trained theater director. I have control issues, okay? I'm working on it. So, you ask, what was the paradigm shift? So I started, I started um, getting interested in this guy this summer. And I was like, could this develop into something? And I started doing that. I started doing the crazy making thing. And then the time, you know, and then there was real connection and, and we we're trying to figure things out. And I just thought, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this? And at the same time, I was like, I'm going to be really brave in this relationship and just like, own how I'm feeling, own what I want, which I did, which was really great. And he said, yeah, no, like, I feel if it's not, no. And that hurt. But again, then I'm back at the same place where I was with the one. And I thought, you know what? This is ridiculous. I need to stop doing this. And so... I did this exercise. Are you guys familiar with Byron Katie? Uh, Byron Katie is this amazing woman who has a way of bringing query to our thoughts. Her book, she has a book called Loving What Is. And that's her thing. She says, you can argue with reality all that you want, but reality always wins. And so her point of view and where she's coming from, from her own experience is that our suffering comes from our thoughts, that we attach ourselves to a thought and that that's what gives us our, our suffering. And so can we then just bring query to the thought? And so I was in this moment of suffering and I had a better skill set of dealing with my suffering And so I did, so she calls it the work. It's Byron Katie's The Work. And so I did the work and I thought, what is this, what is the thought that is causing me the suffering? And the thought was, I need to be a mom. And I thought, oh crap, I've got to work this one out. The, so it's four questions that you You write your thought down, and then you ask yourself four questions. And they are, the first one is, is it true? So, I need to be a mom. Is that true? I'm like, yeah, it's freaking true. It's the thing I've known my entire life. It's true. The second question is, is it really true? Fine, fine. Maybe it's not true. Maybe... Maybe, maybe I don't need to be a mom, maybe. And then the question is, who am I with this thought? I'm like, I'm a freaking crazy person with this thought. I'm attaching expectations to relationships before they even need it. I'm 
irrational about things. I'm, you know, sometimes laying in bed at night wondering, am I always going to be alone? Am I not going to be able to share these things that I have worked so hard to learn and the and the history of abuse and neglect that has been in my family for generations and learning how to break that cycle. Does the cycle end by me not having children as opposed to giving my children a healthy place to grow up? Is that what this means? You know, thinking these thoughts, these are the things that bring the suffering. That's who I am with this thought of I need to be a mother. Is not just do I need to have children for my own desires and wants, but because I need to break a cycle of abuse that's been generations in my family. And then the next question is, who would I be without this thought? Wow. I could breathe. I could look at a potential relationship as just a potential relationship and not get strung out on what that all means and where I can really focus on how I can help make this world a better place with my art and with my coaching and with my friendships and with my nieces and nephews. That's how I could be without this thought. Then you look at the statement in different ways and pull it apart. And so, which eventually gets to, maybe I don't need to be a mom. And so I cried a lot. A lot. And yet I was also really liberated. Because it didn't... Because I could just be me. And it could play out however it's going to play out. You ask Liz when she did this work. She tells you it's been eight months. So, because you've come this far, you ask where she finds herself now. And because you've come this far, Liz tells you. It still stings at times, particularly with my birthday around the corner. And I am somebody who loves birthday. And in fact, I enjoy getting older. But, and it's only this thing, it's only this thing about my biological clock that makes getting older for me painful and hard. Other than that, I love it. I love getting older. So it's really mixed, and it's, for me, it's about holding, holding it all. I've really learned in my life that, that when we vacillate between the extremes, that's just cr- more crazy-making but that real wisdom comes when you can hold all of something. And so if I can hold all of that, if I can hold um, the possibilities and, and the privileges that come with getting older, but also hold the pain of what getting older represents and the reality of my biological clock. And so I... I still get a little annoyed, not annoyed, I get, okay, in all honesty, I get a little angry every time I menstruate, 
because for me, as I've gotten older, it's gotten more painful. And I think, really, I'm not going to get a baby out of this. But I want to say this, though, too. It's actually, in some ways, made me, I'm still hopeful. I mean, I'm 39. It's not like, I'm still menstruating. It's It's not like I have to say goodbye. I don't have, you know, I haven't had a hysterectomy or any of those things. Um, so I'm still hopeful and I'm still trying to figure that all out. But it's that pressure that I was putting on myself that just gives me space to breathe and also to, you know, look at my career a little differently and how I can make more meaning out of my life that if the reality does look like that I don't have children then then what is my contribution to the world? Because I do, I mean, as traditionalist as this may sound, and the feminist part of me is a little like, uh, it is how I feel, is that creating children and nurturing those children is a real gift, and it's a real contribution to this world. And... I often think if I'm not going to give this world beautiful and beautiful meaning, you know, lovely, integral, spirited people to this world, then what have I given it? And so what can I give it? And how can I use these maternal skills that have been part of me? And it's so much aware of my being since I was just a little thing. How can I give them and share them with the world? At this point, maybe someone else from the party walks over and joins the conversation. She mentions listening to the first episode of Cocoon with Mary Jane, who, through years of infertility, talked about how incredibly important her career was. How through the difficulties and disappointments of infertility, how much meaning her career gave her life. Well, it didn't erase her pain. She was grateful to have had something that meant so much to her. Yeah, very much. And, you know, one of the things when I talk about having this sense of relief after doing the work is, was that, that very thing of being able to to find purpose elsewhere, with permission, I didn't realize how much I was waiting around. And in fact, I was really surprised because I thought I've been so independent and I have really built this life. And that until I did the work, I didn't realize how much I was. There was a part of me that was still holding back because I was expecting and wanting those things to happen. It's interesting. You were kind of doing the same thing you did as a child where you were, you were making decisions about your own work based on, well, I'm going to need to be a mother yeah. at any moment. Yeah, yeah. And so I really felt a real internal break from that and letting that go. And so still being able to hold hope that it will happen. But but you get to be the person without that question. Yeah, yeah. And And I want to be the person without that question. Yeah. So you're at this party, and if you're like me, you realize that you yourself are experiencing a paradigm shift. Because you suddenly realize what should have always been obvious, that every woman has a story about motherhood to tell, if we would only listen. 
it could not be possible that every woman sincerely wishes for motherhood. And not everyone needs to feel sad that they don't have children. But everyone needs to acknowledge, this is how I feel about this. And whether or not it's a popular thing to say, or whether or not other people want to hear it, every woman has a story to tell. I really struggle with Mother's Day. And mostly because it's thrusted on me. I hate that. I feel like it is really insensitive to do the here. Well, every woman's a mother, so happy Mother's Day. And and my thought is, no, I'm I'm not a mom. A mother is a very specific thing. And, you know, when we're talking about whether or not, however that role came into your life, but I, there's not a little person that I am raising. I have not adopted little people. Like, the, these are not, I am not a mother. I have maternal instincts. I have a desire. And so with Mother's Day, I really think that that is very specific about that and that I want that to be honored. And I think when we, in an attempt to be sensitive and inclusive, um, and it's just tricky, right? Because you could talk to anyone. Somebody listening to this might be like, oh, I totally disagree with you. Because it's such... It is. It's so case by case. It's so case by case. But for me, Mother's Day is about that specific relationship. And so that's... That's hard, and, but I but I do. I think that ev- that every every woman needs to reconcile her relationship with her uterus. I can tell you that that wanting to be a mother is really a central part of my identity, not a socialization. That. But I've done enough work and I, you know, and I'm an ardent feminist. I can, you know, I can track all of that and, and work really hard to figure out where the social constructs and all of that are manifest in my life. And this one, this is just a, a core part of my, of my sensibility and my way of being in the world is this deep desire to be a mother. And I'm really lucky to, that I have the opportunity to, you know, love all my nieces and nephews. They live in Utah, so I don't see them as much as I'd want to. And but that's been really hard for me too. Is to what's the role of an aunt and what's the role? But I have friends that let me love on their kids and let me, you know, feel that desire in other ways. And just as you were saying, Lizzie, earlier, is that. You know, this is part of the what leads me to being a creativity coach because we're all creative beings. And we all come from the divine creator, whatever that means to you, whether you believe in God or just even in humanity, that we all came from a master creator and that we have the desire to create and the need to create is fundamental to our sense of well-being and joy. And Brene Brown talks about that in her research that unused creativity is not benign. It absolutely metastasizes. And you see it in people with a lot of issues with their stomachs and digestive tracts or, or depression and all these things because we need to be producing something in this world. And I look at being a mother as a as as one of the most divine creative acts. I mean, it is the moment when you are a god. 
you know, that moment that you're giving life to another human being, you are touching what it is to be a God. And so in these moments of being able to create, we, we get closer to our own divinity. And so nurturing that in others has really become, become part of my call. And it's part of why I love directing, because I love that I can foster this in, in actors, that I can work with them and help them express themselves and, and, and touch that creativity, that this is a fundamental part of being human is the need to create and that this is a way if I'm not going to create little people which I still cross my fingers that will happen that being a creative being and nurturing creativity in other people is a way in which I can bring meaning into this world you look up the party is wrapping up people are leaving and someone wants to talk to Liz so she smiles at you and excuses herself if you're like me, you nod and sit on the couch for a while, thinking about the conversation you just had. There are a lot of words to describe Liz, but the one that always comes to mind for me is force. She's a force, and it feels like everything she touches, she lights with the fire that she carries within. Thank you so much, Liz, for sharing with us a glimpse into the life you have worked so hard to carve for yourself. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you for holding it all. Thank you so much for telling us your story. We are all the better for it. This is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. Find us on iTunes or on our website, cocoonstories.com. Come see us on Facebook and join in our discussions. Thanks to our editor, Ryan Barnhart, to Ellen Barnhart and Ben Howell and Tyson Shank for the music, and a big congratulations to Tyson on the birth of his daughter, Lucy. Thanks to Micah Heisel for his unwavering support and for quitting the mob when I asked. I really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Cocoon.